in the last 40 years, the Communist Party enjoyed one of the most benign international environments for the right for a rising superpower. Now, it has created an existential enemy, the U.S., because the U.S. will not rest until it destroys the Communist Party. And now, the good fight with Yasha Monk. At the beginning of this pandemic, there were a lot of projections that this would show the weakness of capitalism. When there was a few weeks in which everybody bought a ridiculous amount of toilet paper and it was a little harder to find toilet paper rolls at your local supermarket, there was jokes and memes that actually capitalism turns out to be like socialism with all of those production shortages. This was supposed to be the year, according to many, which definitively shows and proves the shortcomings of capitalism. Well, I think in many ways, we have overlooked, as we always do, the dog that didn't bark. You know, there has been real economic suffering this year. There have been a lot of people who have been unemployed. There's some food scarcity for people who have lost economic income. But on the whole, I think this has been a story of astounding economic resilience. And this is the biggest public health crisis that developed democracies have faced in a century. It is the most global public health crisis that we have collectively faced, probably in a number of centuries. And yet, water, electricity, internet, food, all continued to be plentifully available. And a lot of the suffering has been alleviated by sensible actions from states, including welfare benefits, stimulus checks, and so on and so forth. All of this, I think, is a vote of confidence for not the ideological version of our economic system, but our economic system as it actually exists. An incredibly inventive free market society that buffers suffering through the welfare state. It's important to make this argument because when we forget about the resiliency of our economic system, we can actually go badly wrong. And there was an important example of that in this year as well. All through the early part of 2020, public health officials in the United States and big parts of Europe were urging people not to wear masks. Now, to some extent, this was based on scientific confusion, but to a much larger extent, it was based on economic confusion. A lot of these public health officials knew that there was a shortage of key personal protective equipment And so they were trying to make sure that it would be reserved for doctors and nurses and other people who urgently needed it. But because these were not economists, because they did not think about the productive capacity of our society, they underestimated how quickly we would actually become able to produce a lot more PPE if they urged people to wear and produce those masks. The actual solution we ended up with unfortunately, a few months later than we should have done, is for a lot of people, thankfully, to wear masks and for our society, for our economy, to produce all of the masks that are needed for medical professionals and nurses and you and me to wear them. So let's not be Pollyannish. Let's not forget about the difficulties and the hardships and the suffering this year. But let's also pay attention to the dog that didn't bark and point out the extent to which our economic system actually has helped get us through this very difficult year. Today, I have Minsin Pei on the podcast. Minsin is the Tom and Margot Pritzker Professor of Government at Claremont McKenna College. More importantly, He is really one of the most distinguished scholars of China in the United States, and he's very interesting on its long-term development. So in our conversation, it's partially a little bit of a history lesson, which actually taught me a lot about the different stages of China's evolution over the last 40 or so years. But it ends with a very interesting set of predictions about the future direction of the country. As Minsin sees it, The country is now in a kind of neo-Stalinist stage. It is really incredibly oppressive. And this is because Xi Jinping thinks that he needs to put on the oppression in order to preserve the power of the party. But he thinks that that may be a mistake. 
but actually precisely that lack of political reform, the crushing of civil society may in the long run accelerate China's transition to democracy. So it's a very interesting, very provocative thesis. Whether or not you'll end up agreeing with it, I'm sure you'll learn a lot from this conversation. Minson Pei, welcome to the podcast. You're welcome. It's great to be talking with you. Wonderful. You know, this is very rare that I listen to an academic lecture and I'm inspired by it, but I just listened to a Lipset lecture that you delivered at the National Endowment of Democracy very recently. And I thought it was incredibly insightful about where China is at today and where China might end up in 10 or 20 or 30 years. Let me start by asking you a question about Lipset himself. Lipset is the author of what's called his modernization theory or the most important contributor to it. And that's broadly speaking, the idea that all good things go together, right? That if you have economic growth and people are getting more educated, that also makes it much more likely for countries to become democratic. Now, that seemed to be right for a lot of the 20th century. And it's one of the things that made people so confident about the future of democracy in countries like the United States and Brazil and India. And it's also one of the reasons why in the 1990s, early 2000s, people thought, hey, you know, as China is going through this incredibly rapid economic development, they have to be headed towards democracy. So let's integrate them into all of these international institutions and wait a few years and boom, China will be democratic. A lot of people are now throwing that theory out of a window and saying, hey, look, this clearly was wrong. This clearly didn't work. Should we throw the theory out of a window? No, the theory should not be thrown out of a window, but the theory should be looked at again and see where it is useful and what part of it can be applied to China. When I look at China from its journey that started in late 1970s, the end of the Maoist era, to today, there was really three periods. The first period in the 1980s, and you would say the modernist theory actually looked pretty good, pretty promising in examining Chinese future because the 1980s, all the good things did go together. That is, reformers were in charge, China was being integrated into the world. Economic reform was taking place. And when I look at the progress of economic reform on one measure, that is the relative decline of state-owned enterprises in Chinese economy, the 1980s was the era in which it declined the most. Average 2.5 percentage points of GDP per year. So if you're standing in 1990, you look at the last 10 years of Chinese development, it's getting much, much richer there's a real private economy developing, they're getting educated, there's actually some political liberalization. So project the trend forward into the future. I think a lot of people who read the modernization theory can get impression that it's linear. It is not linear. When you look at all countries, economic development and the accompanying political evolution, you'll find that some periods all the good things go together, some periods, only bad stuff happens. Uh, So that's the case with China. So 1980s, I would say it was a period in which the modernization theory would stand out as pretty good. But then Tiananmen happened. Tiananmen was this just pivotal event. Now, 30 years later, when you look at how different China was then in the 1980s, and then what China is today, you have to look at the Tiananmen massacre or Tiananmen crackdown in 1989. And tell us a little bit about the nature and the context of Tiananmen, because I think a lot of people who don't know China well, sort of they know there's like a student protest and then they get crushed and there's a famous picture. But I think people don't sufficiently have an understanding of the meaning of a student movement and what the crushing of it entails and what effects it had. To understand Tiananmen, it started... April 15th, 1989, when a purged liberal leader died suddenly. And students in Beijing began to go to Tiananmen Square and put down flowers, wreaths around this monument called the Monument for People's Heroes because they really loved that reformer, that political leader. His name is Hu Yaobang. And then students from all over Beijing began to go to the square they walked, they took buses, and they staged rallies. The government's mistake was that it did not crack down at the time, for good reason, because another reformer was in charge of the Communist Party. So he refused to crack down. But eventually, the government decided to attack the students verbally through its propaganda system. And then that only radicalized the students. So in early May, 
Gorbachev was coming to China. So we're talking about a lot of accidents. First, a reformer died unexpectedly. And then this long planned trip by Gorbachev to China happened, I think, May 13th. So students were very smart, those protesters. They began to stage a hunger strike before Gorbachev arrived because they wanted the government to meet their demands. The demands were very, very modest because the government accused them of fermenting chaos. They said, no, you have to call us patriots. And second, they wanted the government to allow them to establish an independent student union. And that was no-no. <laughs> so because the government did not accede to their demands, students staged hunger strike. And the government did not actually send people to the square. So the situation became really messy. And ordinary citizens began to pour into the streets to show support for the students. So that was throughout the country. About 200 cities in China had similar demonstrations. So in the history of the People's Republic, which was founded in 1949, this was the moment the Communist Party came very close to being overthrown. That you have mass demonstrations all over the country, the party leadership was split, and it did not know what to do. And in the capital, more than a million people took to the streets. So it was a very dicey situation. After Gorbachev left China, the government imposed the martial law. The hardliners came back to charge. They purged the party secretary. His name was Zhao Ziyang. And uh, that happened on May 19th. And about two weeks later, Deng Xiaoping decided to send the troops to take back the square. And in that process, a lot of people were killed, both in Beijing and around the square. After the massacre, the government purged all the liberal leaders. So that was the background. That was the incident. But that incident did not happen in a vacuum. Because in the 1980s, as I said, economic reform, opening to the outside world, political liberalization were happening at the same time. So on college campuses, Western ideas were very popular. So the 1980s was a decade of enlightenment, a mini enlightenment for China. So 1989 was almost a logical culmination of a decade of both economic development and political liberalization. So again, if we sort of go back to our quick Chinese check of modernization theory, this is the moment when the good things stop going together, right? So in the aftermath of Tiananmen Square, what happens? I mean, presumably the economic growth continues to happen. There's a political crackdown. There's a crackdown on free speech and so on. What about the evolution of the Chinese economy. You were saying earlier that in the 1980s, each year, there was a big shift towards privately owned enterprises. What happens with that going forward? The 1980s was the first period. The 1990s, so specifically 1992 to 2012, most of us would call it the post Tiananmen period. It's a very unique period. And then the Xi Jinping period, starting 2013. So, what happened after Tiananmen was that there was a brief period, about two years, in which the conservatives were in charge. And they were clueless, totally clueless, about reviving the economy. And then the Soviet Union collapsed. Deng Xiaoping got very worried. He was about 87. And he thought the Communist Party was so thoroughly demoralized, did not have a direction. So he came out of his retirement. He formally retired. He had absolutely no position <laughs> in the party. So he took a trip to southern China and said, those who are preventing reform should step aside. He was alluding to a very weak successor at that time. So there was pent-up pressure for economic growth, development. And so Deng's uh, call for accelerating economic reform and modernization struck a chord. And the party rallied around him. Before the Tiananmen crackdown, there were three groups in the party. The liberals that wanted both economic reform and political change. The conservatives wanted neither. No economic reform, no political change. And then I call Deng Xiaoping the new authoritarians. The new authoritarians, they want economic change, modernization, but no political reform. So after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the conservatives lost their will to fight. The most important conservative openly said, we've lost the battle, 
we are not part of Deng Xiaoping's camp. So what happened is that the new authoritarians and the conservatives became part of the ruling coalition. They were the ruling coalition, the liberals who purged. So in the post-Tiananmen period, roughly 20 years, this group dominated Chinese policy and they accelerated economic development and put in a lot of reforms that were responsible for China's growth. They got China into the WTO, a very important milestone. And the economy exploded. I'll just give you two data points. 1990, the Chinese economy was about 7% of U.S. GDP. 2000, it was 13% of the U.S. GDP. And then from 2000 to 2010, it was 40% of GDP. So you just see this explosive growth, largely because of the economic reform in the post-Tiananmen period. But of course, Xi Jinping period, he came to power at the end of 2012. He said, all oh, this economic reform, development opening to the outside world is making the party too soft. There's not enough ideological doctrination. The party is coming too corrupt. And we are not using our power internationally in the most productive, assertive way. So when you're looking at this second period, right, if we're thinking of the sort of 1980s and thinking of the sort of long interregnum between Tiananmen Square and the rise of Xi Jinping, I guess you have this mixed picture, right, where you have economic growth and you have people getting a lot more educated. And you have social mores changing a lot. And at the same time, you know, it's clear that there's not political liberalization. And I suppose during that period, a lot of outsiders were looking at China and a lot of American foreign policymakers were looking at China and saying, look, yeah, the politics isn't happening. But if you believe in modernization theory or some sort of simplified version of it, it's got to follow. We are seeing all of the other leading indicators so positive that let's just be patient on the political liberalization, and it's sure to happen. If you look at this sort of basic attitude towards China that the George W. Bush White House would have had, the Barack Obama White House would have had, with some differences of emphases, that was roughly speaking the operating assumption. Well, what happens then with the rise of Xi Jinping that really calls that in doubt? Yeah, well, first let me just take a half step back. When you look at the post-Tiananmen period, there were actually two leaders, Jiang Zemin, who ruled in the 1990s, and Hu Jintao, who ruled in the first decade of the 2000s. They actually had different policies. Jiang Zemin was responsible for rapid economic growth, but he also tentatively launched some political change, very marginal. So the 1990s was a more ambiguous period. That is, those optimists could point to those minor changes such as village elections, which were very, very hot in the 1990s. People said, oh, this is how China could democratize. And they also looked at legal reform. Oh, this is how China could become a country ruled by law. The two nations there was that suddenly people at the local level were actually allowed to vote in supposedly somewhat free elections. And there was attempts to make courts less subject to direct interference from the party, especially in economic matters. Is that broadly speaking right? Oh, yes. Well, they put in more rules to try to make judges act more independently. And they try to reduce the death penalty. So a few interesting, marginal, but not completely meaningless (laughs) changes. So optimists, even yours truly included at the time, thought, well, these were the things you should encourage. But starting in 1999, there was a very famous incident, the Falun Gong spiritual movement. And this is a cult with supposedly 100 million members in the country. And the government decided to crack down. And they used the same method Stalin would be proud of to arrest, torture, detain, imprison, monitor, just a a lot of people. So that got the party escape. So after Jiang Zemin stepped down, Hu Jintao came to power in 2002, and he did nothing, either economically or politically. So things actually went backward in the first decades. So you saw this period, and I would say those who uh, looked at 1980s can be, what should I say, can be very proud of their views. Those who look at 1990s can be excused for their lack of a firm stance. 
And those in the 2000s who still think that China was moving don't know what they're talking about. And those who think Xi Jinping is a reformer clearly do not know who he is. So this is the background. So when Xi Jinping came, I think what he has done has clarified people's thinking about China. So basically in the 2000s, there's starting to be stagnation politically. There's not really any reforms. All of the sort of positive stories you could have told in the 1990s about the village elections and the rule of law really no longer become tenable. But it's not quite clear where the direction is going yet. But then Xi Jinping comes and he really centralizes power. And he makes a very important distinction, right, which is that we had a form of collective leadership before him and he really concentrates leadership in his own hands in a more extreme way. So tell us about how Xi Jinping has transformed the country over the last seven or eight years. I think if your yardstick is whether China opens up politically or not, then centralizing power itself is not necessarily a bad thing. Gorbachev centralized the power and opened up the former Soviet Union. So he concentrated power. That was not the worst thing he's done. Of course, it has huge consequences. I think the most worrisome thing he has done, which shows that he's taking China backward, was actually his systematic crackdown on civil society, on social media, his undisguised ideological hostility to the West. There's a very famous speech he gave. I alluded to in my Lipsa lecture, and I saw a whole text. There are several versions, but the version I saw was given in February 2013. It was not released publicly until March 2019. And there's a good reason, because it was full of hostile comments on the West. But it shows that he had that kind of outlook. And then all the policies put in place shows that he is a true Stalinist. That is, he believes the party needs to be whipped into shape with anti-corruption purge, with ideological indoctrination, and with strengthened organizational discipline. And he believes the party should be in charge of everything, and the Chinese society should not enjoy the same kind of freedom, and China's relationship with the West should be reset. So this is a full agenda for transforming China. And amazingly, he has done that in the last eight years. What he has done used to be thought to be inconceivable, used to be viewed as totally impossible. How could China, after 30 years of opening and economic modernization, be returned to an era very reminiscent in some key respects of the Maoist era, and of course, uh, even more reminiscent of the Brezhnev era and uh, late Stalinist era. So I have two questions here, I suppose. One is, what's the nature of that hostility towards the West? Is it a sense of geopolitical competition and China is being threatened by the United States as well as sort of surrounding allies of Western countries? Or is it cultural, moral? You know, What's the nature? It's geopolitical and ideological. What's interesting about the Communist Party is that when you look at its documents, the speeches of its top elites, they've always looked at the U.S. as an existential political threat, ideological threat, even in the heyday of mutual engagement. They saw that the U.S. was up to no good. The U.S.'s ultimate goal was to put the Communist Party into the dustbin of history. I think they were not wrong. <laughs> I think that was, of course, if you believe in modernization theory, that is what's supposed to happen. So that was some ideological hostility. It comes from self-interest because these are the leaders who know that in a democratic system, they may not be in those positions, but also geopolitical for two reasons. That is, you have to be in the shoes of Chinese leaders and look out your window, and what do you see? You see American aircraft carriers sailing very close to your shores. You have U.S. bases, U.S. allies choking off your sea legs, <laughs> sitting near you. And even when the U.S. was engaging with China, the U.S. had a sort of insurance policy. It is called strategic hedging. So the U.S. maintained its security alliances around China. So China thought, when I have power, 
I want to change the situation. So this is geopolitical. And now after Xi Jinping came to power and China's relative strength has grown several times since uh, the early 1990s, the end of Cold War. So it has closed its gap and it believes that it now has enough heft to tell the U.S. that there is a new sheriff in town. But of course, the U.S. said, no way. I'm going to maintain my existing security commitments and posture. So this is the geopolitical source of conflict. One of the things that always strikes me when you look at a map of Asia is just that, you know, the United States has a lot of countries around it that are friendly to it. It has Cuba relatively close by that's not friendly to it, but that's really the exception. Other than that, it has reasonably good relationships with all of its neighbors. The same is actually true by and large of Russia, a little bit more complicated, but it has certainly a number of that are allied. China really has nothing. I mean, it has North Korea, and that's about it. Um, now, China is obviously a, a huge landmass and, and a very powerful country, and perhaps it shouldn't feel threatened by that, but it is striking where we look at India, where we look at Iran, where you look at Taiwan. It's surrounded by entities with which it's in real conflict. Unfriendly ones. <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting situation to be in for a country that's so powerful and yet feels so surrounded. Explain to me a little bit more about what you mean by China now being a little bit like the Soviet Union under Brezhnev. I suppose the similarity of the top of my head, you know, when I think of Soviet history, I think of a period in which there's a good number of true believers. I don't think the majority of people living in the Soviet Union were ever true believers, but there was, you know, a significant share of a population at its ideological height that believed in communism, that believed that they were making progress, that this was the right way to rule. And it feels to me as though in the 1950s, and then certainly in the 1960s, that starts to break apart. Certainly in the Central European countries where you have the Prague Spring being crushed in 1968 and Budapest being crushed in 1956, but also in the Soviet Union itself, where the transformation goes from a, in some ways, forward-moving, economically forward-moving, and ideologically convinced entity to one that feels incredibly stagnant, and the people in charge are apparatchiks who don't really deeply believe in their own rhetoric anymore. And when you say Brezhnev, that's sort of what I'm picturing. Now, I don't know off the top of my head that this would be how I would describe China, in part because uh, it seems like a much more dynamic society and a much more successful society than the Soviet Union did in the 70s, right? There is rapid economic growth. There is a sense of optimism about the future. There's a sense of closing the gap to the United States, whereas the Soviet Union in the 70s, I believe, was falling behind. So I imagine you're talking primarily about civil society, culture, sort of the feel intellectually of a country. Why do you think China today is a little bit like the sort of Brezhnev era in the Soviet Union? Okay, let's look at China in two parts. China has obviously a society and a party state. Chinese society today is probably no different from any middle-income society, upper-middle-income society, the rest of the world. You can think Turkey, in the 1980s or early 1990s. Per capita income in China today, measured in dollars is about 10,000. And measured in purchasing power parity is about 17,000. So this is a quite well-to-do society. And people, if you look at their daily lives, aside from information, the government really does not bother the lives of an average citizen very much. So... Chinese society is a normal society by all measures, except that they don't have the civil liberties, they don't have the political rights. But when you look at the Chinese state, this is the other part. I think any Soviet official from the Brezhnev era would find it very, very familiar because it is the party, uh, the organization is the same because the Chinese Communist Party is a carbon copy of the Soviet party. The rules are the same because... Both parties operated on the Leninist principle. And the role of ideology, which is this loincloth <laughs> that they have to wear, because otherwise, what would be the values of this party? What does it stand for? You can say, well, we stand for Mercedes Benz. We stand for a very nice apartment. It just cannot 
do this. <laughs> so they have to say, well, it's communist party. So it is within that system. It's full of lies. There's absolutely no trust, and it can be brutal in terms of power struggle. So you can immediately see the enormous tensions between this truly ossified political regime and a very dynamic society. The biggest difference is not just the wealth of Chinese society, but Chinese private entrepreneurs, private sector accounts for about 75% of GDP. In the Soviet Union, that was not the case. So what is happening is that this party state is a parasite on Chinese society. And at one point, the Chinese society, the host, was say, enough with your parasiting. So that's why in the long run, I still believe modernization theory will be proven right. Perfect. This was going to be my next question, because I'm always struck when you look over time at scholarship, to what extent it is subject to exactly the same fads as newspapers and magazines and so on. Perhaps to some extent it drives it, perhaps to some extent it's driven by it. But everybody who is smart in China scholarship in the early 1990s thought, you know, it's a matter of time until China will become a democracy. We're sort of moving in the right direction. And everybody who's smart now is saying, oh, no, you know, we're going to be dealing with an autocratic or even a totalitarian China for the next 50 years. Any hopes that China might become democratic, you know, we're always silly and naive to begin with. And it strikes me that that consensus was naive and oversimplistic 25 or 30 years ago, but that perhaps our consensus today is naive and oversimplistic uh, today as well. As somebody who doesn't know China particularly well, I've sort of been thinking that for a little while, and I was surprised to see from you in a much more erudite manner some of the same arguments. So in the Lipset lecture you just held, you tell us about what theory Xi Jinping has for how to preserve the power of a party. And then you have a critique of it, of why you think that actually Xi Jinping is wrong about it, and unbeknownst to himself, the things he is doing in order to make sure that the party keeps control of the state may hasten its demise and may even hasten the arrival of democracy in China. So that's what you were sort of hinting at earlier, that actually perhaps Xi Jinping's concentration of power, bad thing. It may actually turn out to have good effects. That seems very counterintuitive. Why do you think? Xi Jinping's strategy is a stool. If you compare his strategy to a stool with four legs, and these are the four legs. With one leg is repressing society. That is, he believes that Chinese society needs to be governed, ruled with an iron fist. No human rights lawyers, no civil society, strict information control, big data, you've got techno-surveillance state. Then another leg of the stool is a disciplined, ideologically loyal party placed under the constant fear of approach. So the Stalinist model. And the third is a very assertive China on the global stage, flouting its newfound geopolitical heft and become true force in geopolitical affairs. And finally, the last model is state capitalism. That is, the state will maintain a very significant control of the economy. So when you look at all of these components of his strategy, what you'll find that the riskiest, that we look at both the feasibility and the riskiness, the riskiest is actually his foreign policy. In the last 40 years, the Communist Party enjoyed one of the most benign international environments for the right for a rising superpower. Now, it has created an existential enemy, the U.S., because the U.S. will not rest until it destroys the Communist Party. So this is the almost unspoken, in some cases, it's a spoken objective of the U.S. So now the question is, how will this external competition will the U.S. do to the survival of the Communist Party? Will the Communist Party in the next 10, 15, 20 years have better odds than it had say, for the last 30 years. The question clearly is that it will have really worse odds because this is structural change, something that is going to be unfavorable to the party for a long, long time. I think this is the biggest risk factor. And then you ask, can the party actually rely on state capitalism to continue China's 
technological advances and, by and China's economic growth. The fact that actually since the 1980s, the share of private economic activity in China has stagnated, at least the growth rate of it. And today, a lot of the biggest companies in China are still effectively controlled by the party, often explicitly owned by the state. And so it has this weird amalgam of obviously some private initiatives and a lot of entrepreneurial spirits, but also a lot of bureaucratic control. And the question is, that's worked very well in the development stage. Can that continue to work as well economically over the next 20 or 30 years? That's the question you're posing. Yes, that's the question. Yes. And also the government controls banks, controls a lot of the keys, so commanding heights of the economy. So will that situation, will this combination, a dynamic private sector, but subservient to the state and a very dominant state sector in terms of the key sectors of the economy, will that actually sustain China's growth? And China is not quite mature economy. And uh, when you look at a lot of underlying drivers of the economy, they are much weaker today than in the last 30 years. So that is a negative. And you look at Stalinist approach to dealing with the party. Party members are normal human beings. Since they no longer believe in communism and an ideology, then you just place this group under the rule of fear. And Normal human beings don't want to be watched all the time, don't want to live in a constant state of fear. So you can also expect two things. One is hidden resentment and then superficial compliance and loyalty. And this you're talking about like concrete things, right? So under Xi Jinping, they have reimposed a lot of ideological exercises where these party elites were basically sort of like middle upper managers, right? I mean, day-to-day is actually sort of helping to run corporations and they live in fancy apartments and drive Mercedes and then they sort of sit together and they discuss Marxism-Leninism. I mean, this sounds like a great setting for a comedy, by the way, but you're saying they're sort of going to grow resentful to both having to pretend and to the fear that in the pretend exercise, they'll say something that's somehow wrong and then somebody might use that as a lever against them. That's a very apt description of what is going on. It is a tragic comedy on an unbelievable scale because it involves 92 million people. So on a weekly basis, we got to meet and read Xi Jinping's speeches and uh, confess their innermost thoughts as to how wonderful those things are, even though none of them actually believe him. And many of them actually have enormous contempt for the guy because he's not very well educated and he thinks he's taking China in the wrong direction. So we're looking at a situation somewhere down the line where the elites themselves are going to rise up against a system which they thought was fundamentally problematic, to put it light, and then change society. So with the 1.3 billion, they take away the Communist Party members, people, Xi Jinping would like to treat them like North Korea, as if China could be put in a cage like North Korea. It's going to be a bold experiment. I wouldn't say that the odds for success are very, very high. I'm trying to think of how that might play out, right? Presumably, there would need some kind of precipitating crisis. So, you know, let's imagine a bad economic crisis, something along those lines. Or, of course, the long-term problem in dictatorships and personalistic dictatorships that China has now turned into again. It's not the kind of institutionalized dictatorship that some people perhaps thought it was 10 or 20 years ago where there seemed to be some rules about succession and so on, is what happens if a leader dies or is incapacitated, there's a succession problem, right? How do you think that democratization might play out? What might that look like? Yeah, a lot of unknowns, but we can look at this way. The most dangerous, probably the fastest way is the military conflict between the U.S. and China. We should not lose that if China gets defeated. And it will be a devastating defeat, whether probably even after nuclear exchange. So that would be one way, right? Because we're thinking about occupation and so forth. So military defeat is one of the paths to democracy, let's not forget. The probability, well, 5, 10, 20%. So depending on how you look at it. The second one is actually more likely then we are looking at some 10, 15 years, that is, the economy might continue to lose its momentum. Three, when you factor in economic decoupling, tech war, it's hard to say the Chinese economy will do as well as today, because on the most optimistic scenario, it's about 
to 5% growth. So let's just cut it down to about 3%. The difference between 3% and 5% is fundamental. So 10 to 50 years, and then 10 years later, Xi Jinping will be in his fourth term. Then people say, what have you done for us lately? You've been in power for 20 years. So all the resentments I described just now will come to the surface. And he will be in his late 70s, early 80s. And we know that dominant rulers at that age don't do well (laughs) physically, mentally, and politically because one of the problems a ruler ruling for such a, in power for such an extended time is that he does not even know who his supporters are. That is, those who used to work for him are aging along. And so a level or two below, the system is governed by people they have absolutely no idea with. So I was reading Gorbachev's memoir. And one thing so interesting about Gorbachev is that Brezhnev picked him to be the party secretary responsible for agriculture. And Gorbachev met Brezhnev only on very few occasions. And he asked Chanyenko, why did Brezhnev pick him? And Chanyenko, who worked with Brezhnev, Brezhnev thought you were his man. <laughs> you can see just how, <laughs> you could say the unraveling of the Soviet Union began with Brezhnev believing that Gorbachev was his man. <laughs> So the people you know best, you don't want to appoint. So you reach down a couple of people to somebody who seems like they're on your ideological line because they obviously have an incentive to dissimulate all of the time. I mean, interestingly, you could perhaps make the argument that the same happens with Yeltsin and Putin. That Putin is also somebody who seems somewhat cosmopolitan because he was the mayor of St. Petersburg, which is one of the more sort of open cities in Russia, and it actually turns into something very, very different. I think all things considered, when you look at some 10, 15 years down the line, U.S.-Chinese strategic competition will enter a much more vicious phase, and all the costs of one-man rule, state capitalism, that geopolitical environment will become much more visible. And then you will have deteriorating physical health. So a lot of uh, pieces of the puzzle probably will be together by that time. How much pressure do you think there will be from sort of the new upper middle class and the new middle class? I'm torn on this because from what I understand about that rising middle and upper middle class in China and from the limited interaction I've had with people who, who hail from that world, I could see an argument in both ways, right? On the one hand, I think you now have the first generation in China that's grown up taking affluence and liberty for granted, right? You have a first set of people who perhaps remember that they didn't have a car when they were very young, but really all of their lives have lived in considerable affluence and comfort. There's still obviously a minority of the Chinese population that lives at that level of sort of the comfort of the upper middle class in the United States, but it is a large number of people and it's presumably an influential group. They also are used to certain forms of freedom, not political freedom, but the freedom to travel, the freedom to watch any movie they want on the internet, the freedom by and large to communicate, even though the expression of politically sensitive things is censored. So I could imagine if those things are suddenly shut down, if there's what I've called a sort of downward spiral of autocratic legitimacy, where because of a crisis, you have to crack down more that the cracking down actually aggravates people and so you become less legitimate. You could imagine the makings of that. On the other hand, it also strikes me that so far, that group is very apolitical, certainly afraid of getting involved in any controversial political activity by and large. But even beyond that, it's not even that people say it's not worth it or that I'm censoring myself. I think that that the majority of people I've met and interact with from that group and this message of some descriptions I've heard just genuinely isn't particularly interested in politics. It's not something they want to think about. It's not something that's sort of at the top of their mind. So how do you think this will work out socioeconomically? If you go back to Lipset, part of the idea is that as people become more affluent and as they become more educated, they say, hey, I want democracy and I want those kinds of things and I'm going to make those demands. It's not clear to me that we're seeing the sort of sociological micro foundations of that so far. People are fickle. People and also how modern values can be converted into political action. 
we really don't know. There are a lot of other factors. So this is one. But I believe that modernization theory provides a very important insight into the connection between modernity or between society, democracy. That is, once you give people the physical, material, and intellectual capital through modernization, and that these are much more capable people. That is, the difference between college-educated urban middle-class members such as professional and a Chinese peasant in terms of political capacity is night and day. So that's why I think the more potential political capacity a society has, the more dangerous for the authoritarian regime or the communist regime it will become. When you look at China today and then compare China with the former Soviet Union, former Soviet bloc in the 1980s, before Gorbachev came along, I really don't see much difference. That is, the middle class, the Soviet Union and the former Soviet satellite states actually had pretty good middle class, judging by their occupation, relative income, and education attainment. I didn't have this information in my lecture last night, but I had it in my essay. That is, they all had comparable income, education, urbanization attainment is China today. So that is why you have a structural condition that can be mobilized, that can create a revolutionary situation. So all you need is a spark. And a spark is very idiosyncratic, the political spark. So I compare this really to sort of the prairie fire. You have this huge landscape filled with dry tinder. For 10, 15 years, nothing happens. But then we don't know what, lightning, somebody smoked, then you get a prairie fire. So that is why I fundamentally remain an optimist. I'm very tempted to close the conversation on this fascinating and optimistic note, but I do have one more question, which is that the kind of version of the straight line modernization theory that a lot of foreign policymakers had in the mind in the 90s and even the 2000s when perhaps it wasn't warranted by the facts as much anymore, gave a very clear prescription for what other countries should do. Keep engaging with China, integrate it into the global economy, help it grow economically, because all of those things will just sort of naturally help to lead to democratic improvements and transitions as well. It may have been simplistic from a social science perspective, but I think that's roughly how people thought about it. If we believe your sort of more complicated story of how democratic transition might come about in China, if we believe that actually the conditions for a sort of demise of the ruling regime are slowly growing through all of those structural developments, and that actually, ironically, Xi Jinping's concentration of power in his own hands his four-legged stool is making that more likely. I'm having trouble thinking through what that should mean for foreign policy. I mean, does that mean we should encourage Xi Jinping to keep concentrating power? Does that mean we should put economic pressure on China? Does that mean we should continue to make sure it grows so that the sort of social conditions for that eventual success of democracy keep growing? It's far less clear what the implication is for how other countries should behave towards China. Great question. I would say that for most countries in the world, China is a fact of life about which they can do very little. Only a small number of countries can actually have an influence. So we're mainly talking about Western democratic countries. So around 20. And the real players probably are no more than five to eight. So Now, we don't have to name them, but probably you would know that these are the G7 countries plus India. For these countries, democratism in China is a nice thing to have, but very difficult to get. In the meantime, they have to live with the China they face on a daily basis over the issue of trade, technology, regional security, and above all, climate change. So the China policy that we would like to have It's not going to be a Chinese policy with a strategic coherence. It is really a very improvisational policy. That is, we deal with China on specific issues, and if we can get cooperation, we'll get it. If we have to confront, then we have to confront. So the foreign policy is going to be very messy. 
the prediction that seems likely and right is that also what it should be? I think the question is that、uh, what should the policy be really depends on what your objective is. That is, what do you want to achieve with your policy? And the Trump administration has one very clear objective, so it has. A very coherent strategy. Then you can debate whether it's the right policy. The objective is that we want to weaken China. We want to confront China on everything and in every way possible. So that's very coherent. We don't care what happens to China. It does not even care about whether China becomes a democracy or not. All it cares about China is it's weaker than the U.S. So that policy is not going to be. Biden's policy, because Biden has other interests, so the Biden policy will be a lot messy, less coherent, but probably less costly than the Trump policy, because the Trump policy is leading to not just a certain cold war, but a likely hot war. So the legitimate question to ask is: Does a clear-cut policy serve the U.S. better than a messy improvisational policy? So, what if your goal was to say, "Look, we're happy for China to be or remain strong, but we want to maximize the likelihood that twenty or thirty years from now you have a democratic or at least a less autocratic China, and one in which we actually, despite some amount of strategic competition, which will undoubtedly remain, can actually have readily friendly relations between these two." Countries. If that was the goal, what strategy would you adopt, or would you adopt a strategy? I think if that is the goal, in the short term, you will have to adopt a hardline strategy. That is, you have to show to the policymakers in Beijing that your current path is a dead end. It will be very costly to us, but it will be even more costly to you. So that is the short-term strategy. Because if you allow the current Neo-Stalin strategy in China to succeed, then you actually reduce the chances of your own success in the future. Minson Pei, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening to the Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail dot com. That's goodfightpod at gmail dot com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license, thanks to Silent Partner for their song "Chess Pieces."